Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. In many ways, Elizabeth Holmes looked like a typical Silicon Valley entrepreneur, a Stanford dropout claiming to have a new breakthrough technology, giving TED Talks and most importantly, wearing a Steve Jobs style black turtleneck. Generating attention from the press as one of the few young female founders, Holmes used the mentorship and connections of tech industry giants like Larry Ellison to raise money from some of the biggest names in VC. Living among Silicon Valley's elite, Elizabeth used the standard startup playbook of hype, exclusivity and fear of missing out to win over investors. Theranos was a private company, so she couldn't blame short sellers when negative news came out, but she was able to dismiss those with difficult questions as haters. The company collapsed more than five years ago before the term FUD had been coined, so she didn't get to use that one either. While Elizabeth did pitch herself as a Steve Jobs-style tech founder, Theranos was not the standard Silicon Valley company. To start with, it was a blood-testing company where it's less reasonable to believe that you'll make the Moore's Law-style leaps that you might make in the tech industry. One of the reasons Theranos was able to raise so much money was that Holmes pitched to tech investors rather than experts in blood testing. Medical experts would have quickly seen it as a red flag that she was claiming to use a drop of capillary blood drawn from a finger prick for blood tests. Blood drawn this way, unlike the blood drawn from a vein, is contaminated with tissue and cells that make measurements less accurate. Additionally, blood is consumed in every test that's run on it, so the claim that 200 tests could be run on a single drop of blood would have stretched the imagination of the most optimistic healthcare expert. Expert. Theranos had a very impressive board of directors with big names like Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, but these board members had backgrounds in government rather than in technology, biology or science. A key component of Elizabeth's trial defense was that excessive optimism and exaggeration are standard in the tech industry, and thus her actions should not be classified as fraud. The judge in the case agreed, at least to a certain extent, saying that it's common in Silicon Valley for promoters to engage in that type of conduct in a hearing before the trial began. Since the collapse, big names in Silicon Valley have tried to separate themselves from any connections to Elizabeth Holmes or any claims that her actions were in any way linked to Silicon Valley culture. But when the Wall Street Journal first began exposing the lies behind Theranos, some of the biggest tech investors initially rushed to defend the company. Well, this week we learned that while the terms move fast and break things and fake it till you make it might work in Silicon Valley, they're frowned upon in federal court. On Monday, a jury found Elizabeth Holmes guilty of conspiracy to defraud investors and of three counts of wire fraud. Holmes could potentially face decades in prison, though a much more lenient sentence is expected. 
After deliberating for seven full days, jurors agreed that Holmes had lied to investors over several years about the accuracy and capabilities of Theranos blood analyzers. Witnesses told jurors that they had been lied to and misled by Holmes. One investor told the court that his team had been impressed by the company's claims of having worked with the military and their ability to run a full range of blood tests. It turned out that Theranos never did any meaningful business with the military and its proprietary devices could not perform the tests Holmes had claimed to investors. Holmes admitted on the stand that she had doctored documents to affix drug company logos and that her Edison machine could perform only 12 tests despite her public claims of more than 200. She was not convicted on all charges, just to be clear. Jurors did not hold her responsible for patients who received erroneous blood test results as the prosecution would have had to prove that Holmes herself had persuaded patients to use her tests instead of using a traditional lab. Although this is arguably the greatest crime that Holmes and Theranos perpetrated, it's also the toughest to convict. The jurors also failed to reach a verdict on three counts relating to investors who put money in after Holmes had rebuffed their requests for additional information. Refusing to provide information is very different and frankly much safer in terms of dodging financial regulations compared to providing fabricated data. Lisa Peterson, who managed money for Betsy DeVos's family, testified at the trial that she was scared that Holmes would cut her out of the deal if she asked too many questions, so she cut her due diligence short and invested $100 million. I guess FOMO is not just a thing for new investors. Okay, so while you might think that a fraud on the scale of Theranos would have changed things in VC, Angela Lee, who teaches venture capital at Columbia Business School, told Bloomberg News this week that she's not seeing any more thoughtful due diligence today than in the past. If anything, there's a sped up timeline for due diligence in the last couple of years, she said. The Theranos case where you run an actual fraudulent business looks almost quaint in 2022, raising hundreds of millions of dollars from gullible investors who don't do much due diligence is no longer particularly impressive. Today it can be done by selling them a hyperlink to a drawing of a monkey. While many in Silicon Valley have denounced Holmes as a fraud, not everyone agrees. Tim Draper, a well-known venture capitalist who was an early investor in Hotmail, Baidu, Skype, Tesla and Bitcoin, was also an early investor in Theranos. He told the New York Times this week that the outcome of the trial made him concerned that the spirit of entrepreneurship in America is in jeopardy. A willingness to bet on these entrepreneurs and their visions has made Silicon Valley the innovation engine of the world, he said. Now, I don't 100% disagree with him. It is important to have a business culture where entrepreneurs are willing to take business risks and potentially fail. In fact, that's why things like bankruptcy law exists. Investors in startups usually understand that they're dealing with optimistic entrepreneurs. They know that most startups do fail. But of course, there's a big difference between a startup founder saying, I'm sure I can get this new app coded up and working versus someone outright lying and claiming to have a working technology that the science has not yet been established on. 
Elizabeth Holmes wasn't just overly optimistic. She specifically lied to investors and customers that her technology worked when it didn't. One of the reasons that retail investors are excluded from investing in private companies like Theranos is that much higher standards of disclosure must be met when pitching to retail investors or to the general public. Technology companies, particularly those who have not yet sold shares to the public, have historically enjoyed much more leeway on their promises, even as their valuation soared into the billions. Venture capital investors and high net worth investors or accredited investors are expected to have sufficient experience, knowledge and expertise to understand the risks that they're taking and to be able to weather any potential losses from business failures. These people are not protected by securities regulations like regular investors. The SEC doesn't care if Betsy DeVos loses $100 million, as she still has enough for a comfortable retirement. The best book that I've read on venture capital investing is Zero to One by Peter Thiel. He talks about investing in companies that make completely new things and thus have no competitors. But the difficulty in that space is that the majority will fail. VC investors understand this and they're not upset about an honest failure. But there is a difference between failure and fraud. Thiel argues in Zero to One that when you know that many of your investments will fail, you can only invest in companies that have the potential to return the value of the entire fund. So each investment can return the entire value of the overall fund, theoretically. Thus, one or two successes will make up for all of the failures. We're in a unique time in financial history right now, where most investors are protected from frauds like Theranos because they're prevented from investing in private companies. They equally can't invest in hedge funds or private equity. But because of gaps in securities laws, there are much riskier products that retail and institutional investors can put their money in. There are grey areas like SPACs that work around IPO disclosure requirements, and then there's the world of crypto, which is completely unregulated. I often see comments online after a crypto pump and dump or rug pull along the lines of when will the SEC step in and protect investors. I've even seen people claiming that they feel less likely to get ripped off when investing in crypto than in the stock market. Fraud trials of corporate executives have been rare in the United States in recent years. Some argue that this is due to the deterrence provided by the Sarbanes-Oxley reforms that came in the wake of a series of scandals in the early 2000s. Others argue that the Department of Justice has simply turned a blind eye to white-collar crime over the last 20 years or so. Former Nikola CEO Trevor Milton is scheduled to go on trial for criminal fraud shortly. He has pleaded not guilty to lying to investors about the electric truck company's technology. Nikola Motors went public through a SPAC merger under Milton's leadership. With SPACs, the deal that takes the private company public is classified as a merger rather than an IPO. This allows founders to pitch their financial projections and sell the dream rather than relying on actual historical audited financial statements as is legally required for a traditional IPO. 
With SPACs, though, retail investors end up holding the bag rather than experienced venture capitalists who might be expected to know better. While the Holmes verdict and the Trevor Milton trial will likely make startup founders more cautious about their promotional statements, I don't believe that it's going to put the American spirit of entrepreneurship in jeopardy. There's a big difference between being confident about your ability to deliver and fraud. When I first started managing money, I spent a lot of time in capital raising meetings, explaining my investment process, the risks and what the likely expected return might be. Once in a while, I found myself in awkward situations where potential investors would try to extract a promised rate of return. Of course, giving guarantees like this is not only inappropriate, but it's quite foolish too. No one knows how the future will unfold. And while I might have been confident in my methodology, different market conditions that arise can cause your performance to be significantly higher or lower than you expect. On this note, a famous active ETF manager raised some eyebrows last week by announcing an expectation to deliver a 40% compound annual rate of return during the next five years. Statements like this from a regulated fund manager are highly unusual and have the potential to breach securities regulations. There's a big difference between saying, I have a portfolio of great stocks that I expect to outperform and I'll return 40% a year over the next five years. So where does all of this leave us? Well, over the last 90 years or so, the evolution of securities regulation in the United States has helped the country to develop the broadest and deepest capital markets in the world. This has allowed investors to grow their savings by investing in innovative companies and has allowed great companies to raise capital and provide needed goods, services and jobs to the country. In the 1920s, before securities regulation existed, public traded companies didn't even provide investors with accounting statements. In many parts of the world with poor investor protections in place, people don't invest in stocks at all, viewing markets as a scam. They're left with things like real estate as their only place to store wealth. This is not good for individuals or for economies. Some of the problems that we're seeing today is that due to patchy regulation, people have been lulled into a false sense of security. They've become used to the investor protections of highly regulated markets, and then they expect the same level of investor protection in unregulated markets. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.